Well, Merry Christmas to you as we come up to only a few days away from uh, celebrating Christmas. And I think for many of us, uh, that being said, this is a maybe somewhat paradoxical time of year, especially if you're maybe a follower of Jesus. Because on the one hand, we're excited. The hope of the world has come. We're celebrating Advent. Uh, you know, it's supposed to be happiness and joy. Uh, we're going to, a bunch of us will be seeing our families over the next couple of days. And maybe that's a good thing for you. Maybe it's not. I don't know. Maybe somewhere mixed in between. So on the one hand, but it's supposed to be happy, right? It's supposed to be joyful. It's the best time of year. And yet all of us have things in life that are difficult. All of us have had pain and suffering. All of us have had things that have been difficult to us. In fact, some of us, maybe for some of you, uh, this year was especially difficult. And so as we're supposed to be happy and joyful, maybe you're uh, going through the holidays without the, the, with the loss of a loved one for the first time, or maybe you're uh, go- dealing with a difficult trauma or an unexpected uh, relationship that, that ended. Whatever it might be, we're supposed to be happy and joyful, and yet at the same time, it's really, really difficult. And I share that because the last few weeks we've been in this series called He Shall Be Called, and we're looking at the, uh, the four names that the Messiah is given in Isaiah chapter 9, written roughly 700-ish years before the Messiah would come. Uh, and in each week, we talk about what this means and, and who the Messiah is, and I think each week we, would, we, we left thinking, okay, I can see that, that makes sense. However, I think today, uh, the name that we're going to be looking at today is probably the most difficult to believe, if it is even true at all. And so here's what it says, again, just to get us up to speed. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, again, talking about who this Messiah would be, who we now know as Jesus, some of the names that, that he could be known by. It says this, for a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And again, if you've been here so far, you might have maybe thought something along the lines of this, that this Messiah is a wonderful counselor. Okay, that makes sense. If Jesus is this Messiah, if God himself did come to earth, it shows us that he cares about us, that he's near to us, and that he loves us. So I can buy that. Wonderful counselor makes sense. Uh, mighty God, whether or not you're a follower of Jesus of not or not, if God exists, and we talked about how vast and powerful the universe is and all the galaxies and how perfectly it was created, it shows us that God is a very powerful God, very mighty. God. So that makes sense as well. Uh, Last week, we talked about how uh, this Messiah is our eternal father. We looked at the parable that's uh, widely known as the parable of the prodigal son. And we saw that if this is how Jesus as our father, God the father treats us, then he is loving and he is good and he is the perfect reflection of what a dad should be. That makes sense, right? And then we come to Prince of Peace. Now, Prince of Peace in Hebrew, which is what this language was written in, is uh, literally the Hebrew word for Prince of Peace is Sar Shalom. Now, Sar uh, means to be the one in charge, to be Lord, to be chief. And Shalom means rest and tranquility, or maybe more so uh, wholeness and completeness. And so we see here that this Messiah to come, or this Messiah that has come in our case, is the one who's in charge to give us completeness and wholeness and rest. And yet... Many of us, if we're honest, do not feel that way. Many of us, if we're honest, are struggling and don't know how to harmonize these two things together. And so the question we're looking at this morning is this. What does it mean for Jesus to be our peace? What does it actually mean for him to be our peace? Or maybe putting it another way, where is he, right? Where is the Prince of Peace? Because you have probably dealt with difficult things, or you know people that are going through difficult things, or even if you just look out into the world and you see the pain and suffering darkness that seems to be all over the place, we ask the question, where is he? And what does this actually mean when it seems like life is not all that peaceful? Is this actually true? Or what in the world are we supposed to make of it? And so with that in mind, we're going to read a passage in Matthew chapter 10, 
again, if you have a Bible, you can read along with us. Uh, if you don't, there's a black one somewhere around you. And if you do not own a Bible, you can take that one home. Uh, but flip over to Matthew 10 if you want to read along with us. Uh, today, you know, we talk about Prince of Peace, and you might think light and fluffy and happy. Uh, this message, if you're familiar with the term, is probably as unseeker sensitive as you could be. We are looking at one of the most difficult passages and teachings of Jesus in all of the Gospels. In fact, if you kind of stereotypically think of Jesus as kind of the flowing hair, holding a calf, uh, drinking decaf decaf coffee, you obviously have not read this text, right? This text is not that. It's the complete opposite of that. And just to set it up, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he's telling them how hard life is going to be for them as they go out and tell people about who he is and the grace and mercy that Jesus is Lord, that he is the Savior of the world. And he's basically telling telling them that you will be beaten, that bad things will happen, happen to you because of it, but it is worth it. It is worth it. Life will not go well for you, but you should still do it. And so it is a very difficult passage to read. And then he says this to them in verse 26. He's continuing on this phrase that life will go bad to, for you, for his 12 disciples, but do this because it's worth it. And then he says this. He says, therefore, don't be afraid of them. So don't, even though it's going to be hard, don't be afraid of the people and things that will come against you and the things that will be difficult for you, since there is nothing covered that won't be uncovered and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the light. What you hear in a whisper, proclaim on the housetops. In other words, telling people the message of who I am and what I came to do. Verse 28, and then he ups the ante a little bit. He says, don't fear those who kill the body but are not able to kill the soul. Rather, fear him who is able to destroy, to destroy both soul and body in hell. He's saying not only will you be beaten, but you could also actually be killed. And what do we know? All the disciples except for one that is listening to Jesus teach this would actually be beaten and killed for following Jesus and claiming that Jesus resurrected from the dead, that this actually would happen to them. Now, what what are we supposed to make of this? I think kind of Jesus' point here is something along the lines of this. That as your fear of God increases, your fear of man decreases, right? Life is hard for the disciples. Things will not go well for you. You might even die. But here's what we know. Those people that might, not kill, that might kill you are not God. I am. They do not control your eternal destiny. I do. And so as, as maybe afraid and as trepid as you might be facing some persecution, you just need to know that they're not the ones are, that are in control, that you should fear me over them. And what this should bring to mind to us is that we should have this reverent fear of God, that if he is powerful and mighty and just and in control and knows everything and is in control of everything, then we should have a reverent fear of him. Now we say reverent because we also know this, that he is a good God that loves us. And so we should respectfully fear his power and might, but know that he loves us and that he cares for us. Because as we talked about last week, he is also our good and perfect father. He is the perfect embodiment of what it means to be a dad. And so although we should be careful and though bad things may happen to us, They're not ultimately in control. In fact, he continues by saying this in verse 29. Here is why we should continue to trust him no matter what may happen. He says, aren't two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them falls to the ground without your father's consent. Uh, uh, Then he continues on by saying, but even the hairs of your head have all been counted. Uh, In other words, he's saying, here is why you and I do not need to fear. 
because the almighty creator of the universe is powerful and preeminent. However, he is both also at the same time intimate and close. He is control over all of the universe and yet knows what's happening with the birds, knows how many hairs that you have, and nothing happens without his permission or without him allowing it. Nothing happens. And so because of that, even though life can be hard, he says this, verse 31. He says, so do not be afraid, for you are worth more than many sparrows. In other words, you might be thinking, what does this have to do with the Prince of Peace? Here's what it has to do. Jesus is saying, do you know who your dad is? Do you know who is in control? Do you know that he loves you and that he cares for you? It kind of reminds me, and I might have shared this story before, but when I was like eight, nine, ten years old, something like that, uh, I was in the driver of our house. We grew up, we lived in a two-story house, and above our, our garage, we had this bonus room, and the, the garage kind of jetted out maybe four or five feet a lot farther than the bonus room, and so there was kind of uh, some roofing that you could climb up there and sit on, I guess, if you wanted to. It was kind of angled down, and then the, the windows to the bonus room. And so one day, my dad gets a ladder out. It's about eight to ten feet off the ground, goes up there, and I don't know what he was doing, like painting something or cleaning the windows or whatever. So he's up there, and so I go up there too, because why not? And then when he was done, he, get, he turns, gets down the ladder, and you know, gets onto the driveway, and he tells me to come down. And I don't know why, but I was absolutely terrified about going down the ladder. Like, I just, in my mind, I knew I was like, I was going to, you know, turn off the, uh, uh, off the roof and put my feet on the ladder, and, slip, and I was going to fall. I just knew it. And so I begged him to, instead of making me go down the ladder, to go inside, go into the house, and open the window, and let me climb in through the window. To which he said, I'm not going to do that. And so I'm begging with him, and I still remember to this day him looking at me and saying, Dylan, I would not ask you to do something if I didn't think you could do it, right? He, I was like, okay, he's in control. I trust him, and so I don't know how this is going to go, but he is telling me to do it, so I'm going to do it. And so I come to the edge of the, of the roofing area, and I'm kind of nervous, and so I grab the, the ladder, and I turn a little bit and put my first foot on the ladder, and I'm like really nervous. I'm like, if I let go, I'm going to fall. And so I pick up my second foot, put on the ladder, slip, bam, hit the concrete. I'm just kidding. That didn't happen. <laughs> that didn't happen. I was fine. I got down. Everything was fine, right? Now, why do, why do I share that story? Here's, here's what he's saying. Here's what he's saying. This is why you don't have to worry, because bad things will happen, but ultimately, nothing happens without my consent, that ultimately, I am in charge of all of it, and you can trust me. You can trust me. And so then he goes on to say this in verse 32. Here's why it's important that we trust him. He says, therefore, everyone who will acknowledge me before others... I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But whoever denies me before others, goes their own way, rejects me, I will also deny him before my Father in heaven. In other words, if you say that you don't need me, that you're good enough without me, then I will not give you the grace and mercy that I came to do, and things will not go well for you in eternity before my Father if you do not trust and believe that I am the one who does for you what you cannot do for yourself. In other words, here's what we need to know as we try to figure out what this means by Jesus being our Prince of Peace. Here's what we need to know, that ultimately Jesus is in control. He's already saying here is that life is hard, things might not go well for you just because life is hard, and by following me, some things can be difficult for you, but ultimately, I am in control. And here's why this is important for us to know, because as nice and as lovely and as fluffy as Prince of Peace sounds, it is only true if he's actually in control. He can actually only be the Prince of Peace, whatever that actually means, if he is in the one who is in control to make that happen. It kind of reminds me of, uh, and I don't mean to be stereotypical, and this is all I know about these situations, so I apologize to anyone if they want to correct me later, that's fine. But when I think of like beauty pageants, right? Beauty pageants come up, and what is like the one thing that like all beauty pageant people say? What do they want to have happen? 
There you go. First service got it right. You guys did too. I'm very impressed by that, right? You say world peace, right? And when you hear that, what do you do? You roll your eyes. You're like, okay, that's nice. Why do we do that? Because we know that they, just like none of us, can really make that happen, right? Why? Because none of us have the power and control to make it happen. And what Jesus is saying here that I can actually only be the Prince of Peace if I'm in the one who's in control enough of all things to make that happen. And so life will be difficult, but you can trust me. And I say all of that for the context of what he's about to say in verse 34. He then goes on to say this, life's hard, you can trust me, and then this. Don't assume that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. At this point, we say, Jesus, you're really messing it up, right? This is not what we thought you were supposed to do, right? This does not sound very peaceful to me, and it seems to be confusing, right? Because how do we harmonize that, that Isaiah is saying that he's going to be our Prince of Peace, then him clearly saying, I'm not, I'm not here to bring peace, or harmonize even what we talked about, even what we sang about. Luke chapter 2, uh, when the angel is, appears before the shepherds and telling them that this Messiah has been born, here's what it says next. It says, but the angel said to them, because they're freaking out, uh, don't be afraid, for, I, uh, for look, I proclaim to you the good news of great joy that will be for all people. Today in the city of David, a Savior was born for you, who is the Messiah, the Lord. And this will be the sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped tightly in cloth, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was a multitude of the heavenly hosts with the angel praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to people he favors. So Isaiah says he's going to be the Prince of Peace. The angels are saying he's going to bring peace. And just to make this even more fun, let's continue. Verse Philippians chapter 4, it says this, right? It says, Don't worry about anything. But in everything, through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So how do we do with that when he clearly said, I did not come to bring peace, or just to have fun, let's just do one more. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is giving his famous Sermon on the Mount. If you're familiar, this is the part of the Beatitudes, and he says this, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. So what do we do? Did the authors of, the, of, the, of Scripture just get it wrong? Were they confused? Did Jesus actually contradict himself? What did we do with the fact that he's supposed to bring the Prince of Peace, be the Prince of Peace, and then he clearly says, I have not come to bring peace? What do we do? See, I think the problem is, on the one hand, we could just say all oh, the Scripture's wrong and, and move on, or we could take a step back and see what might be going on here. I think the problem is, is, when, is what comes when you define what you mean by peace. See, what is it do you mean by peace? I think all of us, myself included, typically think of peace like this. We think peace has to do with our circumstances, right? We think circumstantial peace, we think comfort, uh, safety, satisfaction, everything lined up. When you tell me, Dylan, what, 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 is, what would be peaceful to you? Uh, what I think of as I come home from work, our one-and-a-half-year-old and four-and-a-half-year-old make themselves dinner, they clean up, they give themselves a bath, they put themselves to bed, and then Duke, there's a Duke game on, it's exciting, and Duke wins, and then I don't have to go to work the next day, and, I, and the kids sleep until 10 o'clock, and they do all the chores, and it's awesome. And I, uh, that's what I think of. I think life's going well, everybody's healthy, everything is paid for, nobody's mad at New City Church, I haven't said anything stupid, so nobody's mad at me, like everything's going well, like, that's what I think. And yet, and so you think about that, and Jesus says, I didn't come to do that, the problem then is that when we think about peace, what we think is not what Jesus is talking about. It's not that he's contradicting himself, it's that he means something different, and I would say something even 
better. In other words, Jesus, as, as we're seeing here, didn't come for circumstantial peace because all of us would say there are things in our life that are not peaceful. Instead, he came for, again, shalom. He came for wholeness and he came for completeness. And so how do you reconcile that our circumstances are not good or maybe are not what we want, but that he came for completeness? What does that actually mean? What does that mean? And so we'll continue and try to figure that out by, by picking, the, uh, picking up his teaching back in verse 35. Again, I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. How does that actually bring wholeness and completeness? Well, let's continue. Verse 35, he says this, just to make it even more fun. He says, for I came, he's going to give an example of what this looks like, uh, to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Now, I don't know, maybe Jesus is just having fun at this point because the whole daughter-in-law, mother-in-law thing probably would have happened regardless of whether or not he came. But anyway, verse 36 continues on, and a man's enemies will be the members of his household. The one who loves a father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. The one who loves a son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Now, to be clear here, here is what Jesus is not saying. He is not saying that our job, if you are a follower of Jesus, is to bring strife to our families. He's not saying that we are supposed to do that. But what he is saying is that if we follow him, if he's the one who is over all things, that he, if he has our allegiance before anything else, then difficult things may happen. I like how the message, which is a translation paraphrase of the Bible, uh, it puts it this way on these verses. He says, don't think that I've come to make life cozy. I have come to, uh, to cut, to make a sharp knife cut between son and father, a daughter and mother, bride and mother-in-law, cut through these cozy domestic arrangements and free you for God. He goes on to say, well-meaning family members can be your worst enemies. If you prefer father or mother over me, you don't deserve me. If you prefer son or daughter over me, you don't deserve me. In other words, I think here's the point, that when a core belief that you have uh, is different from others, it can create a real tension, right? Like, let's just talk about politics, for example, right? If you believe and vote a certain way and someone else d differs from you, even if you're not trying to be up in each other's face about it, it can still be awkward, right? Election year can be awkward. It can cause tension, not even because you're trying to, but because you guys, you, you believe something radically different than someone else, and you don't even have to be a jerk about it for it to feel maybe a little uncomfortable at times. And what he is saying is that if you follow me and my allegiance is before everything else and you have around people that do not agree with that, it can be uncomfortable. And what we know about Christmas is that Christmas can even expose that even more, right? Because here's what we know. If you're a follower of Jesus, what does Jesus do? He changes us. And maybe for you, this was the first year that you actually gave your life over to Christ, or maybe you've been a follower of Jesus for a while, but maybe this year you're like, man, I'm going to actually take this seriously. I'm actually going to try to follow him in every area of my life. And so what happens is you, uh, Jesus changes us, and so Christmas comes, and we're around family members again, maybe the, for, for the first time in a while, and maybe you don't say some of the things that you used to say. You don't participate in some of the activities you used to participate in. You don't do some of the things that you used to do, and without being out front, without being in front of anybody's face about it, family members might look at you weird. Why would you do that? Why wouldn't you say that? They might accuse you of things that you're not even trying to do simply because your heart has changed. Now, why does that happen? Because light exposes darkness. Like, we don't even have to necessarily go out and try to be in anybody's face about it, but we don't like when people do not participate in things that we're doing because we don't want to feel called out. We don't want to feel less than. And what he's saying is that you don't even necessarily have to be in people's face. You don't even have to be a jerk about it. 
But if you put me above everything else, life can be difficult for you. And this was a radical statement, right? Because for us, we read this and we're like, man, that's pretty intense. But for them, this was even a bigger deal. You see, family back then was everything for you. It was your retirement plan. It was your social structure. It was everything. And what he is saying is that even your family does not come before me. Now, for our circumstance, we can, we can substitute family for anything. It could be family. It could be something else. But what he is saying is actually helpful to us, and here's why. Here's what we know. If God loves us, if he cares for us, if he knows what is best for us, then everything he asks us to do is actually for our own good. And what we see is that if we actually put him first before other things, then it allows us not to heap expectations on people and things that cannot come through, that they cannot do for us, right? When we understand that, that our friends or our family are not God, that they will let us down, that we will let each other down, then it gives us room to give each other grace, forgiveness, mercy. It gives us room to, to grow together, to serve one another. But if we don't, if we get that wrong, if we put all of our hopes and expectations on people or things and they do not come through for us, everything in our life can come crushing down. In other words, uh, maybe you could, you could think of it like this, that the only way to love others rightly is to love Jesus most. This does not mean that you can't love people well if you're not a follower of Jesus, but if you want to love people rightly in the proper perspective that we're actually supposed to do it, we need to understand that no one can be our God except for God himself, which means that we can differ on politics, we can differ on our lifestyles, we can have different ethnicities, we can even be, have different sports teams, but nothing, none of those things are more important than Jesus because Jesus brings a whole swath of differences, a whole, every, all of our differences together, we can love and encourage one another because Jesus is better than those things. I kind of think of it this way. Um, if you're a parent, right? I'm a parent. I've got a four-and-a-half-year-old and a one-and-a-half-year-old-ish, something like that, right? And I don't mean to be, like, controversial, but, but the reality is at this stage of their life, I am not my, friend, my kids' friends. I'm their parent. And unless I understand that, I can't raise them well, right? What I say goes, I love them, I care for them, I'm smarter than them, I'm wiser than them. They don't get to set how much screen time they get. They don't get to set their diet. They don't get to do any of those things, right? And if I was there, just their friend, we would talk about it, and we would kind of come to a mutual agreement of what we want to do. But I'm their parent. So what I say goes, and that's awesome because I like being in charge, right? Now, when they get older and they move out of the house, then the relationship changes. But unless I actually understand that I'm their parent and not their friend, I cannot be the parent that they actually need. And that's what Jesus is saying, that if you want to love your families well, you need to understand that they cannot be for you what you might think they're supposed to be. They are not God. I am. The only way to love others rightly is to love Jesus most. And so we continue by, 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 by reading what he says next in verse 38. Again, it's going to be hard, but you should do this, and here's why. Make it even more fun. Verse 38, and whoever doesn't take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. So again, unless you do this, then you're not actually worthy to follow me. Now, well, here's what's maybe ironic about this, is that, again, God never asks us to do anything that he isn't first willing to do himself, that Jesus is actually literally going to do this. He's literally going to take up a cross and give his life for us, and in response, he's offering us to come follow him so that we can experience the grace and mercy he offers and also extend it to others. And here's what we know. Even in America, even in the United States, some of you, uh, particularly if you did not grow up in a Christian home, have become followers of Jesus, and you actually have experienced this. You have actually experienced family strife because of your decision to love and trust Jesus. That it's going to be difficult, but what he seems to be pointing here is that it is actually 
worth it. Again, Jesus only asks us to do things that are actually good for us. And so if we try to tie this back in about what this means, he's saying life is going to be hard. You might actually be killed for it, but it's okay. How do we tie that with the fact that he is claiming to be the Prince of Peace or that Isaiah says he's the Prince of Peace? Here's what I think this means for us, that God doesn't promise circumstantial peace, but peace within our circumstances. God does not promise circumstantial peace, but peace within your circumstances. And there's a difference there, right? Now, here's what we know. If you're a follower of Jesus, in some ways, that actually does improve your peace, right? It might avoid you uh, making some poor decisions. It might allow you to be more gracious and kind. Again, it might allow you to put relationships and and, and things in the proper category so you don't get your hopes uh, built up over things that are not worthy of those things. And so it does help in some ways. But in other ways, it can be hard. And what he is saying is that he can give us rest and completeness and wholeness, not because of our circumstances, but in spite of them. That in this life, things will be difficult, but if you have him, you can have peace, not because of your circumstances, but in spite of them. And what do we know? In the kingdom of God, when we die and meet Jesus face to face, and he reignites his kingdom on heaven and on earth, it's going to feel completely restful, completely peaceful, and completely wholesome. Why? Because we will actually be in his presence. And so in his kingdom, our circumstances will also go well. But for now, our circumstances will not always go well, but we can have peace regardless of them. And to make this a little real for us about what does this actually look like? Like, can we actually experience peace in the midst of really difficult circumstances? I uh, want to read to you a letter by a missionary by the name of Adoniram Judson. Uh, he was a missionary in the early British 1800s to India, and he writes a letter to uh, his future in-laws for permission to marry their daughter and take her to India with him, and here's what he writes. He says, I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring, to see her no more in this world, whether you can consent to her departure and her subjection to the hardships and the sufferings of a missionary life. Whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insults, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Uh, Can you consent to all this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you, for the sake of a perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God? Can you consent to all this in the hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with the crown of righteousness brightened with the acclamation of praise which shall resound to her Savior from the heathens that are saved through her means from eternal woe and despair? Now, I don't know about you, but this is not how I asked Christina's parents if I could marry their daughter. (laughs) But here's what happens. Now, her parents end up saying yes, and here's what happens. She goes to India never returns home again. Her parents never uh, see her again. Uh, Her and her husband lived a very difficult life, a very painful life. Things often did not go for them the way that they wanted. But here's what we know now. If you actually go to the region of India where they began their ministry, you will find that there are about half a million followers of Jesus and over 4,000 churches that were planted that can be traced back to this faithful couple. Here's what happened. They said that he is worth it, no matter what happens. And so the question for us, particularly if you're a follower of Christ this morning, is that are you and I simply consumer Christians, or is Jesus worth everything? 
Are we willing to do whatever he asks us to do, to go wherever he asks us to go, or to be faithful in the season, in the workplace, and the people that he has put in front of us? Are we willing to be faithful to what he has called us to do? And if we are not careful, what we can do here, even at New City Church, is we can make following Jesus comfortable and easy. Why? We do the best, especially on a Sunday morning, we do the best that we can to create a warm and welcoming environment, a safe environment for your kids. We have coffee, we have parkers, and we try to make everyone feel loved and accepted, right? And if we're not careful, we can kind of create this idea that following Jesus is all merry and happiness all the time. Now, we do this because we want people to know that God loves them and cares for them, but we should be careful to think that this is not always going to be easy, that life is going to be difficult. And are we willing to be faithful? Are we willing to say that Jesus is worth it even when our circumstances are not what we want them to be? Right, maybe to give you one more uh, of a more modern example, uh, this happened in 1999. Uh, it's the story of Graham Staines, and he was also a missionary in India. Uh, him and his two boys were essentially kind of at this Christian uh, rally, uh, missionaries and living in India. They were sleeping in their car, and in the middle of the night, some radical Hindus came by, uh, set their car on fire, had long poles so they could not get out of their cars or the window, and watched them slowly burn to death. And they all died. The father and the two sons died. And two weeks later, uh, his wife Gladys wrote this in the national newspaper in India. And here's an excerpt. She says this, The Lord God is always with me to guide me and to help me try and accomplish the work of Graham and my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But I sometimes wonder why Graham was killed and also what made his assassins behave in such a brutal manner on the night of the 22nd of January, 1999. It is far from my mind to punish the persons who were responsible for the death of my husband, Graham, and my two children, but it is my desire and hope that they would repent and be reformed. Now, she would go on to beg the international community to continue to send people and missionaries to the very region in which she was lived and in which she lost all of her family. Why? Because to her, no matter what the cost, it was worth it. No matter what was happening to her, it was worth it worth it. But it's still in those moments we ask this question, where is the Prince of Peace, right? How do you actually have peace when life is hard, when things are not going the way that you want? How can we actually say that Jesus is worth it? How do we get to that point? We get to that point by finishing reading what Jesus says in verse 39. Here's how he concludes talking about how life is hard, but here's why it's worth it. Verse 39. <clears throat> he says, and anyone who finds his life will lose it. Right? If you think through things and, and accomplishments and money and power, you're always chasing these things. You think you have found something, you actually will lose it. And anyone who actually loses his life because of me will find it. Right? Jesus is essentially saying this, looking for circumstantial peace will drive you crazy. And this is not just like Christian thing. This is the reality of the situation that if you are looking for peace in this world, it will lead you to despair. And all of us have been there, right? We've all had things that we wanted and sometimes we actually get what we want. And then what happens? A couple of weeks later, we're already on to the next thing. There is no person, there's no amount of power, there's no amount of money, there's no amount of circumstance that will give you any sort of peace for any extended period of time. And so what Jesus is saying is that he has come into the world to give us what the world cannot give us. He has come to give us peace that is not dependent on our circumstances. In other words, if I could wrap all of this up, and what does it mean for Jesus to be our Prince of Peace when he literally said, I did not come to bring peace, here's what I would say, and here's the point, that Jesus did not come to bring peace. He is peace. He literally said, I did not come to bring peace. I am 
peace. And if you want to experience peace in the midst of all of the circumstances and everything that is happening to you in your life, you will only find it in me. And this is what the gospel is, that God came to do for us what we literally could not do for ourselves. And again, as we celebrate Advent, as we celebrate this Christmas season, we celebrate not just the fact that God came. We celebrate why he actually came, and this is why there is hope, that he loves us so much that he came to do for us what we could not do for ourselves through his perfect death, burial, and resurrection. Anyone who trusts and follows in Jesus can experience the hope and grace of forgiveness that he offers, that anyone who trusts and follows in Jesus can experience peace regardless about what may be happening to you outside in your circumstances. The gospel is that you and I have nothing to prove and no one to impress because of what Jesus does for us, and that is peace. The peace is not you trying really hard and things not going the way that you want. The peace is no matter what is happening to you, you can still be anchored, you can still have hope, and because you know one day life will not be what it is. One day in his kingdom, both circumstantially and internally, everything will be peaceful, and that is why he came. To inaugurate, what does it mean for us to have peace no matter what may be happening in our life? And so I just want to encourage you, if this year is hard, if Christmas is hard, some of you over the next couple of days are going to be sitting around the table of family members who you don't like. Some of you might be sitting around the table of family members who have actually abused you. And you're there, and you're freaking out, and you do not know what to do, and life is hard. You need to know that God loves you, and peace can be found regardless of your circumstances, but it is only if you rest and abide in Him. Jesus did not come to bring peace. He is peace, and we can only experience that through a personal relationship with him that he gladly made possible by his coming. Let's pray.